Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm Marie Stella, your host from Melbourne, Australia. Let's start the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Self-Improvement Atlas, the Personal Science Insights Podcast. Adulthood is a weird, weird time. Some of us are investing, some of us starting families, and others don't quite understand how a will works. But there's no shame in that. Uh, Everyone needs to start somewhere, and that somewhere just might be this podcast, because in the studio with us today is a Wilson Estates lawyer, Maximilian Williams, to enlighten us on what estate plan is and why it's vital for our personal development. Hi, Maximilian. Can I call you Max? Is that okay? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Max. How are you going? I'm good. How are you, Marie? Uh, fine, thank you. Um, apart from a lack of sleep, uh, but I'll get through it. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into estate planning. Sure. So I studied law at university and so I um, Although for most of the degree, I wasn't actually thinking I was going to go into the law and practice as a lawyer. Um, Towards the end of the degree, I realized that it might be something worth exploring. And so uh, once I started doing the practical element of it, instead of just the theory, I found that I was enjoying it more. And so I got my first job, um, started practicing as a lawyer, quite enjoyed aspects of it. And then I got a different job. And at that firm, they gave me the wills and estates portfolio to look after, Uh, bearing in mind that I was still quite a junior lawyer at this stage and didn't really know a great deal about wills and estates. Uh, As it turns out, it wasn't something I'd actually studied much at university. And um, I sort of fell in love with it. And uh, but there wasn't really anyone at the firm who I could work under or or mentor me greatly. So what I did was I sought education elsewhere. And I studied a master's in wills and estates. um, And that helped greatly, sort of filled in some of those gaps, exposed me to senior practitioners who knew a lot more than I did. And pretty much from that point on decided that this was the area of law that I wanted to get into. And so fast forward a few years, I became accredited with the Law Society, uh, which is a great achievement. Not many practitioners um, get to be accredited. It's a very small percentage and ended up getting a job at DeGroote's, which is where I work now, DeGroote's Wills and Estate Lawyers. And that's a specialist firm that just does wills and estates. And so that suited me perfectly. That sounds like the perfect happy accident. How Mm. nice. It was a bit of a closing doors moment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm actually, I'm speechless. That sounds like such a nice story. And if only I was that 
fortunate to <laughs> have just fallen into it. Um, but I'm very, very happy for you. Um, but before we get sidetracked, um, mm. let's get to know you. This is Have You Met Max Williams? So what is your favorite book? I would have to say probably uh, The Lord of the Rings. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, sorry. <laughs> I think a lot of people will agree with you there. Mm. Um, what is your favorite movie? You can't say Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Double up. Um, uh, I would have to say Batman Returns. Batman Returns. That's a good one. The, out of, the 1990s yeah. Tim Burton one. Yeah. Okay. Like out of all the Batman movies, one of the better ones. Yes. It's unique. It's very Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a bit of a closeted Batman fan. and uh, Not closeted anymore. <laughs> it's out there. Well, those who know me know I'm very much into Batman. But um, yeah, Batman Returns. I loved it when I was little. Still love it now. Um very, there's very few bad Batman movies. Mm -hmm. Batman and Robin from the late 90s, we don't talk about that one, <laughs> but the rest of them, they're all very good. How do you feel about BVS? Um, I really enjoyed it. Really? Um, it was a very long movie, mind you. It was such a long movie. Um, Batman was definitely the star of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, from a Batman fan, mm. of course. Um, what podcast have you been listening to lately? Well, the one that I was just listening to only maybe an hour ago was Hamish and Andy. I love their oh, podcast yeah. every week. Yeah, yeah they're great. They're great. Um, do you have a famous role model? Uh, yes. So his name is Kurt Angle. And he won an Olympic gold medal in amateur wrestling at the 1996 Olympics. And he won it with a broken neck. How? Uh, a lot of fortitude, I suppose. But, um, yeah, he was sort of my childhood hero growing up. And, yeah, um, yeah I'd say he's probably my famous it role model. Got to have a lot of resilience to mm. go through something like that. Yeah. Um, can't relate. I personally can't believe, <laughs> but it's it's admirable. I have to say, yeah. yeah. Um, what's the last course you completed? Uh, would have to be my master's degree, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, how long ago was that? So I graduated from that in twenty seventeen, um, and that was a I think about two or three year course. And yeah. I was doing the maths in my head <laughs> five years ago. That's six. Wait, five, six, six. Yeah, about six years, six ago. years ago. Yeah. I mean, I did my accreditation with the Law Society. Um, that was about four or five years ago. I don't know if you'd class that as a course. It was more of an exam, really. <laughs> I but... mean, it, I think it counts. <laughs> yeah. It beats me. <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> well, if it's a lot of work, I don't know. I feel like it's a course. It mm. sound, sounds like it, but... We'll, we'll, we'll call it a course. Like, let's call it a course. <laughs> Did you find it enjoyable? Uh, not while I was doing it. It was very stressful. It's sort of an intensive. It's done over sort of two or three months. And so, you know, for a good few weeks, I would, that was all I was doing at night and whenever I had a spare moment. But you just sort of deal with the pain yeah. short term and you obviously get the long term gain. Yeah. Do you ever look back and think, I would do that again? Oh, I mean, if I had have failed and had to reset it, oh, it'd be pretty difficult. Yeah, I wouldn't pretty want to difficult. do it again. But you, but you would do it again. 
I probably I probably would one more time if I had to failed it. If you had to, um, because it was it was a bit of a dream yeah. to get that and to be on un- you know included in that upper shalon of um, mm-hmm. you know practitioners. So I probably would have had another crack, but if I had failed it again, I probably would have just let yeah, that go. Like, it's a lot of that's work. That's enough. Like I've tried. I've had my time. I've had my opportunity. Um, all right. I think we've gotten to know quite a bit of you. Um, mm. So we'll just get right into the interview. Um, first question is, how do you define personal development? I think personal development is um, learning new skills or improving existing skills in order to um, improve your life, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I feel like the reason we ask all our guests this question is because everyone has a different idea of what personal development is. And so like whatever questions, whatever the answer afterwards is going to inherently be based on the first question. So that's really interesting because we've gotten a lot of answers like um, other things like or oh, improving yourself, like just a very abstract idea mm. and I don't think I've heard a lot of like just improving your skills mm. um, as often, but that is definitely part of personal development. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you think are part of the personal development journey? Well, I think it probably starts when you become an adult and you have to take responsibility for your life because once you become an adult, particularly once you move away from home, I think, and you're no longer under your parents who thus far have assumed that responsibility and and very much have assumed responsibility for your personal development. I think once you become an, an adult and you leave home specifically, you have to come to that point of realisation that uh, that's on you now. Uh, you're the one who's responsible for developing your personal skills and um, what you're going to turn out to be. But having said that, um, I don't think you can do that in a vacuum. I think personal development comes uh, from being in a community, uh, whatever community that may be, but you need other people to help you, whether it's a teacher, a friend, um You've got to have someone who's at least with that particular skill or aspect of your life that you're seeking to improve further down the track than you and who can give you that guidance and that wisdom. So you need people, I think, mm-hmm. as part of that. Right. And with, okay, well, I'll ask this question later. But yeah, first, um, how would you define estate planning? So to put it in very simple terms, um, from a lawyer's perspective, estate planning is uh, putting in place a set of documents, legal documents, that address concerns around what happens to a person's wealth and assets when they pass away eventually. And our job is to ensure as far as possible that that person or that client's uh, assets and wealth end up in the hands of the people they want them to. Mm-hmm. So what does estate planning constitute? What does it look like? Well, it's uh, if you're choosing to use a solicitor, and maybe a little biased, but I think you should use a solicitor <laughs> because, of course, you can do your own estate planning much like most things in life. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of will kits and the like or online wills are the big fat at the moment. Um, you could try and do that yourself, but I think I think it's foolish 
because lawyers like myself have devoted a, a big chunk of our life to excelling in this area and understanding all of the, the nuances and the aspects of the law. So I think um, a person who's wanting to do estate planning should seek specialist assistance. So seeing a lawyer like myself. And what that will involve is initially just having a chat like we are, where as the lawyer, I'll ask you as my client, just a number of questions to try and understand what your circumstances are, your family tree, who are the people that are close and important to you? Um, what do you own? What does your estate consist of? Because that's a big chunk of estate planning is your estate. And ultimately, what are your wishes? What do you want to happen when you pass away? And then what can I do to make sure that happens? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, what is this might be a stupid question, but I hope you'll bear with me. So what would the difference be between doing it yourself and going to a specialist? Because like you said, you can do it yourself, but things can go wrong from mm, what I'm gathering. Yeah. So what kind of things go wrong? Well, when you're doing it yourself, um, firstly, you're writing the document yourself. And like with any other area of law, there's certain terminology or phrases that are very unique to the area. And if you don't understand them, you could inadvertently uh, do something that's contrary to, to what you want. So you might call something the, the wrong name in the document. You could inadvertently leave someone out or put someone in that you didn't quite uh, intend to. Um, or just from a formal perspective, you could just um, not execute the document correctly because like with any legal document, there's a certain set of criteria. And if you're just unaware of it, it could be quite a silly mistake, but it could end up costing your estate a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I totally get what you mean because I did actually take um, media law. I did study media law and it was just very difficult to grasp for someone with no knowledge of law whatsoever. Mm. So yeah, I think I agree with you there. If you can afford to um, hire or engage, especially do it. Mm, um, <laughs> so why is it important to have good estate planning? Well, it's, it's only important if you care about either providing for those who you love and are close to or just one, if you care about where your assets will end up when you pass away. I mean, I find most people care about one or both of those things, but that's really why estate planning is important, to make sure that your loved ones are provided for in the best way and that your assets end up where you want them to. Because if you don't do estate planning properly, your assets or your wealth could end up somewhere you don't want them to. Mm -hmm. um, and another question, uh, what do... what are the as like what what would be considered an asset for example like just any object at all or is it property or mm. or does it have to be like of significance so an estate asset is anything that you personally own mm -hmm. so that includes all of your clothing furniture car money in bank accounts, anything that's owned by you, not just real estate or a house. There are, however, some assets 
that fall outside what we call an estate. Um, one very common example is superannuation. So not a lot of people realize that superannuation is not technically yours. It's not an asset. It's more like an interest in a trust. So when you pass away, it's not like money in a bank account where that will just go according to the people you put in your will. Instead, uh, the trustee of the super fund actually has the discretion as to who to pay your superannuation to. Now, they can only pay it to certain kinds of people, the ones you would think like spouses and children uh, or dependents. Uh, but the point is that requires its own set of estate planning um, considerations. And I suppose at this point, it's important to note the will is often the sexy document. It's the document that gets all the attention. And a will is important, don't get me wrong, but there are limitations as to what a will can do. And so, as I just explained, a will generally won't really have anything to do with your superannuation. You'll need to do a separate document for that. Same thing goes for if you have a family trust, or if you have a company, if you have a business. The will may or may not really have much relevance for what happens to those, those assets. assets. Um, so a will's important, but it's really just one of many potential documents that may be used in the estate plan. That sounds like a lot. Mm. <laughs> That's all that I can say. Um, how do you think that estate planning contributes to our personal development? Well, if I can go back to what I was saying earlier about personal development really becoming important once you become an adult, I think it ties in quite nicely with taking responsibility. Um, getting yourself a will or other estate planning documents, or we'll just say doing estate planning in general, is part of taking responsibility because you're thinking about the future. You're being mature. Um, and I know it's an uncomfortable subject for many people. We don't like to think we're going to die, or if we do, we think it's going to be way, way in the future. But the reality is we don't know when any of us are going to leave this earth. And so having that will and other documents in place is just a really good, responsible way to make sure, I mean, it's not ultimately about you. You're not here anymore. It's about those you leave behind and making sure that they're going to get the support and the protection and the assets that you want them to. So when do you reckon is a good age to start thinking about the will? Well, I think the minute you turn 18, you should seriously consider whether a will is appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality is, of course, I doubt very many 18-year-olds have wills. Yeah, I'm um, far behind. Even if we just look at the general population, you'd be perhaps surprised to hear that, I mean, the statistics fluctuate, but generally it's something like two-thirds of people out there don't have a will. So the majority don't have a will. It's actually abnormal to have a will, even though you should. But so I say 18 is when you maybe should start thinking about it, but you definitely need to get a will once you start owning significant assets. So I'm going to say more than just your clothing and maybe some furniture. Um, okay. Once you're starting to accumulate superannuation, a car, <laughs> savings, once you've got an estate, then you need to think about a will. Or if you've got kids, because that's the other aspect of a will, um, most of the focus of a will is what happens to your assets when you die, but there are other aspects of the will that are arguably just as important, if not more important. 
and one of those aspects is appointing people to take care of your your, your young children if something was to happen to you and the other parent. Mm -hmm. uh, we call that guardianship. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get clients who leave little jokes in their wills? <laughs> um, I've never had anyone intentionally leave a joke in their will, but sometimes you do read wills, often they're done by other practitioners, where the way a clause, a clause has been drafted or um, certain ways they've done things from a practitioner's perspective I find a bit funny. So it might be, you know, they've divided their estate between 20 people and they give 12.7% to one person and 11.6% to another person. And for it, you're just thinking, how did they come up with those percentages? Why? <laughs> and how are you going to, I mean, that could be messy to calculate. So, I mean, that's not a joke, but mm -hmm. from a practitioner's perspective, it's a bit of a funny way to do it. Um, or there might be reasons put in someone's will as to why they've left a beneficiary out. And the reasons themselves might be, you know, borderline funny, um, <laughs> you know, because they didn't, uh, you know, come to my wedding or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. That is actually quite humorous. Yeah. <laughs> so to the people who have no knowledge about estate planning whatsoever, where would you advise them to start? Well, I think the first step is to contact a lawyer. I think that's one of the main messages I would like people to take um, from this podcast is the first place to start is to speak to a lawyer. Um, and there's lots of great lawyers out there. Uh, most of the work in this area, people will be pleased to know, is done on what we call a fixed fee basis. So there is somewhat of a misperception, I think, out there that lawyers um, charge by the hour. And so when you see a lawyer, it's and I clients say this to me all the time, half jokingly, you know, the clock's ticking and that sort of thing. But in this particular area, estate planning, obviously different if we're talking about, say, litigation, but certainly in estate planning, um, most lawyers I know for these types of products and services will offer it on a fixed fee basis. So you know what you're going to pay up front. Um, so I think talk to the lawyer, you get some quotes. Um, my grandfather has a saying, he says, if you pay peanuts, expect monkeys. <laughs> and so um, I know people are particularly cost conscious, especially with cost of living and inflation, all that kind of thing. And I, I can appreciate that. But my experience is that very few people appreciate what we do as estate planning practitioners. Um, it's just drafting a document. It's just filling out a form. No, it's art. It, yes, it is art. It is it's, art. Um, but people don't realise that. So when you, you give them a quote, I often get a bit of resistance because they, they didn't think it's worth that much. But, you know, we're talking about value. Mm -hmm. How do you value yeah, something? Yeah, that's a shame. Mm. So what should we consider when creating a good plan for our estate? Well, like I said before, the first thing you consider is who's in your family tree. Um, who are the people that are closest to you? Who are the people that are dependent on you? So you got to think of them first. Then you have a think about what you actually own, get a picture of that, and what are the different kinds of assets. So for instance, like I've talked about before, super, you know, you need to consider that separately. So your family tree, your estate, and once you've understood both of those things, then you can you can start working out the different scenarios. If this person survives me, what do they get? If this person dies and this person survives me, what do they get? And 
depending on how many potential beneficiaries you have, that can be simple or more complex. But um, I think that's put basically the things you need to, the steps you need to go through. Family tree, estate, and what do you want to happen? Interesting. So it's like kind of almost making a fan fiction out of like what would happen if you passed away. Choose your own adventure. Yeah, choose your own yeah, adventure. Well, I've never heard it put like that, but I suppose you could use that analogy. <laughs> so how long does the process usually mm. take? Well, I'll give you the usual lawyer answer. It depends. But um, on average, you've got your initial meeting with the lawyer and that doesn't usually take more than, say, an hour. Then assuming the clients go ahead with the proposal um, it takes about three to four weeks to prepare most of the documents and then the clients will usually come in at the end to sign. So unless there's anything overly complex, on average, it shouldn't take longer than, say, a month from the moment you meet to the moment you sign the documents. Now, there can be complex, particularly where you have family trusts set up or companies, that can take a bit longer because there's more sophisticated concerns and considerations but for your average person with the average sort of estate, it's about a month. Interesting. Um, so how often would you recommend people updating their plan? Is there like is it commonplace to up update it? And how like how often? Mm. So I think there's two aspects to that. There's reviewing the documents and there's actually updating the documents. Now, in terms of reviewing them, we always say review them once a year. So on the anniversary that you sign them, get them out, have a look over them, make sure they're still accurate. In 99% of the, the time, it will still be, and you can put them away for next year. But what you don't want to do is set and forget, which was where, and again, is what I think most people probably do. You make the documents, tick, I've got my will, they go in a drawer and you don't look at them for 20 years. I realise that because the dates of the wills that I often see when people come to see me, see me are usually about 10 years or more old. So I think in practice, most people are just setting and forgetting. But, you know, if we want to do this properly, we should be reviewing every 12 months. Now, as I alluded to, just because you're reviewing it every 12 months doesn't mean you need to update it every 12 months. Um, I think in most cases the wills or the documents you make will usually last you a good five to 10 years. Again, the, the dates of the wills that I see when people come to see me are usually around that 10 year mark because all of the big life changes that happen that would warrant an update to the documents usually happen in five to 10 year increments. So it might be you get married and then five to 10 years later, you've got kids. And then five to 10 years later, they might be approaching adulthood. Five to 10 years later, you might be divorced. I mean, you know, it, that tends to be the way life works out. You have these big changes that happen in those sort of increments. Everyone's different, of course, but if as a general rule of thumb, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. I am going to take all of that into account and I'm really going to start thinking about this because it's embarrassing that I've gotten this far in life and I've not even thought about my estate planning or will or anything like that. Well, I did think about it briefly, right? But it's like I think I thought about it when I – was a young adult and I had a lot more time to spare and I was like, ooh, more responsibility, fun, mm. adulthood. And then like all the act like all the actual adulthood stuff came in and just normal brain space <laughs> to even think about 
a will or estate planning as fun. Mm. It's just now it's just a thing that I have to do and it's no longer exciting. And I just like somehow slipped away. Mm. Um, but now that I see it as choose your own adventure, <laughs> You're more invested. Now. I'm way more invested. <laughs> um, personally, what is the practice that you do um, or recommend to your clients or relatives to create or improve your ideal estate planning? Well, as I said before, I think reviewing it at least annually is a good first step. But it can also just be about challenging yourself to, and I know it's uncomfortable, but challenging yourself to think about what would happen if you passed away. Um, what's going to happen to all of my things and what's going to happen to all of the people in my life? And if you practice that and you think about that Again, not every day, but I'd say at least every year, um, I think that can certainly inform and help your estate plan. Um, because if you're going to do it, I think you want to do it properly. And part of that, I think, is giving your full attention and thoughts to those different scenarios. Um, I could very easily see you uh, just wanting to tick a box and so doing it half-heartedly and just saying, well, at least I've got something. I haven't really thought much about it, but at least it's there. And sure, I mean, having a will probably is better than not having a will in most cases. But I think if you're going to go to the effort, particularly if you're paying someone to, to do your will and other documents, you might as well think about it properly mm -hmm. and think about all those permutations of what could happen. Oh, no, when I do it, I'm going to go all out. You're going to be so proud of me. I will be so detailed and it's going to be all well thought out. Um, I love creating a good story. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just I'm just going to take this as an art. Um, but what are three good things about this practice? And this can be related to actually, like, it can be directly related to estate planning. But so essentially what I'm trying to ask <laughs> is when you think about your estate planning and will every single year, like you've shared. Are there any good things that actually come out of this? Like, do you realize, for example, oh, I've got to treasure my loved ones a bit more? Do you realize certain things like that? Well, I mean, that could be one byproduct of the whole. I mean, I don't think that's the aim or the goal, but I could see that very much being a byproduct of the uh, process. But I think it's more about just thinking about things that you wouldn't otherwise think about. It's not unusual for clients to be sitting before me and I might ask them what I consider to be maybe quite a straightforward or a simple question. And the response can often be, well, geez, I've never thought about that. Geez, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. And so sometimes one of the good results of the process is just making people think about things that they wouldn't otherwise think about. And of course, the result of that, if they think about it and then implement some sort of document to address it, a legal document to address it properly, the end result is that a potential problem has been solved. Whether it's, um, you know, the 
the guidelines for how their children are to be brought up if they if both parents were to pass away you put in place documentation that sets out very clearly what the parents want and so if they did pass away there's some direction there as to how the kids are best to be raised that could be a good outcome or it could be just ensuring that the inheritance that someone's to receive is to be properly protected and that will safeguard them so estate planning a good chunk of it at least is very much about thinking about other people because again it doesn't really affect you because by the time this document comes into effect you're not here anymore it's those who are closest to you who are affected and so it's actually quite a selfless act and i think that may be why not enough people do it because you don't actually get much out of it yourself it costs you money you don't really get much of a personal benefit from it and so it does require you to be quite selfless. How about that? So that's actually very much in tune, in line with self-growth and personal development because mm. you have to pay money to be selfless and you have to take time to be selfless. Even then you're not getting anything out of it. It's just your loved ones are going to be taken care of and you have to think about for some people it's going to be morbid like mm. maybe some people don't like thinking about what happens yep. after death i personally can't say that i dislike it like it's in it's in it's an interesting alternate universe you know um are there any challenges that come with thinking about this every single yeah. Well, I think the first challenge is to do it at all because I my suspicion is for most people, as you said, it's a morbid topic, it's quite uncomfortable. So I and and the reality is we all get very busy with life. And because it's talking about something that for most people they don't think they're gonna die anytime soon. Um and so it doesn't when you're busy and you're having to prioritize it sort of falls down the list because it seems like the least important thing because you're not going to die anytime soon or so we think um, so i think the first challenge is really just doing it at all um, and and getting into the habit of reviewing those documents and having those thoughts and questions um, as an annual practice the next challenge i think is um, getting expert advice because again, there's this, I find resistance and underappreciation for what estate planning is. And so people might not want to seek a lawyer for advice because they think it's too expensive or it costs too much. And again, they're not getting any direct benefit from it. So I think, you know, getting the, the expert advice is sort of the next challenge. And then if you've made it past those two hurdles, I think, again, just giving it the proper attention that it deserves and maybe having those difficult conversations. Depending on your family circumstances, it may be a very straightforward conversation or for more complicated families, let's say a blended family, where you might have a partner, a second relationship and children from a first relationship. I mean, that raises a whole host of questions and issues that need to be worked through. And that might not be a comfortable conversation to have. Um, or it might be as simple as, uh, you know, a younger couple sitting before me and me asking them, as I have to do, are you considering having kids? And maybe they've never talked about that before. 
That's awkward. I mean, so a yeah. lot of these questions, I mean, I have to ask them, but, you know, these are awkward conversations to have, but they're important conversations to have. So I think that would be the other challenge is just having to give your attention, proper attention to these sorts of things and, and having the awkward conversations if you need to. Well, like, I guess, like, good ends up coming out of this anyway like yeah sure awkward conversation but at least you've talked about it because you don't want to go into a serious relationship or into a marriage not having talked about these things and then find out later on down the road when you've already said vows to each other um and gone on your honeymoon and like moved in together that you guys like aren't on the same page about kids yeah so yeah uncomfortable but necessary yep um, that seems to be like the overarching, arching, overarching theme of this. Yeah, estate planning. planning. Uncomfortable okay. but necessary. Exactly. <laughs> That's the tagline. <laughs> um, so now we'll move on to the questions from the audience. And I think actually a couple of these have been asked before. And essentially it's just, well, what the title of the section says this it's, we gather questions from the audience about the topic and we ask you to share the thoughts your thoughts not the thoughts of like the general industry or anything mm. like your specific specifically your thoughts um yeah so how can i protect my assets from potential creditors or legal claims through estate planning well, I think there's two aspects to this. There's protecting those assets while you're alive, but then there's also protecting those assets after you pass away. And there's different um, strategies involved with both. I think while you're alive, um, it's about thinking. It's about thinking about the structure in which those assets should be owned. So maybe you put them in a family trust, or maybe. Um, you have a sort of loan agreement with uh, a company that you own. You know, there's various aspects to that, but it might be thinking about the structure of your assets. When you pass away, it's more about asset protection for your beneficiaries. So it might be you might have a concern that your children, um, either they're married or they're about to get into a relationship and they might divorce or have a separation and there's a concern that that inheritance might be up for grabs in the property settlement. And so one of the main ways you can try and protect against that is something called a testamentary trust, which is where you set up a trust in your will for that particular beneficiary. So that's quite common in the industry. Um, but I think they're sort of the two aspects. I could probably can't go into too much further detail because it is very much case by case, but there's just some sort of general thoughts. Okay, that's good enough for me. I. I mean, like, I probably should probe farther, but at the same time, I don't want to, like, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Um, what are the considerations for planning for incapacity and appointing a power of attorney? Mm. That's a good question because... Um, Really what we've talked about so far in our conversation has been focusing predominantly on death. And that's obviously a big, a, you know, a major aspect of estate planning. But in estate planning, 
as the questioner indicated, there is also the other eventuality, which is not death, but incapacity, where whether it be from illness or accident, you lose the capacity to make decisions for yourself. Now, this is the document, we call that a power of attorney. Um, different states have different terms for it. Uh, for instance, here in Victoria, it's you can have an appointment of a medical treatment decision maker, it's a bit of a mouthful. That is mouthful. In other states like Queensland, it's just a power of attorney. Mm-hmm. So um, each state has its own specific terminology and forms, but the general idea is the same. You appoint someone to step into your shoes and make those decisions for you. So um, I often tell clients that out of a will and say a power of attorney document, from the client's personal perspective, the power of attorney is actually the more important document because that will affect them while they're still alive. As I said, the will, you're out of here, doesn't affect you anymore. (laughs) But the power of attorney, you're still alive when that document comes into effect. And so I think you need to give proper consideration to who you're going to appoint to make those decisions for you. Now, you need to make sure you appoint someone, obviously, that you trust because that is, I mean, it's in the name power of attorney. You're giving someone a lot of power. They're potentially going to be making decisions about every aspect of your life. So you need to be able to trust them. They also need to have a certain level of financial acumen or skill to be able to make those decisions. And they also need to be someone um, who's able to act promptly. So there's not much point appointing a sole attorney who lives in New York, for instance, because if anything needs to be signed or decisions made quickly, because of the time zone and the distance, probably not going to work. So if you wanted to have that person as the attorney, you'd really need someone else with them who's local who can execute any documents and, and wishes. Gosh, as you were saying all of that, I was thinking like, oh, well, because you're like describing like one consideration after another, after mm. another. And each time I was like eliminating all these people, I was like, all right, I like not like, yeah, okay, I, I can trust this person, but maybe not with my life out, <laughs> out the window. Mm. Um, financial acumen, probably not this person, bye, there you go. And then I, it came down to my mom and then you said, well, someone local would be good. Mm. And I was like, damn, mom, (laughs) come here now. Well, this is why these conversations are important. So as the lawyer is talking to the client and explaining these sorts of things, you might walk in the office with one set of ideas about who you're wanting and part of my job is not necessarily to change people's minds, but it's just to make them think about things that they might not otherwise have. And sometimes that means they do change their mind. Um, it's not just my job for the client to tell me what they want and I just dictate it and write it down. Um, I'm not just merely a mouthpiece for the client. Part of my job is to put questions, difficult questions to them. So have you thought about this? Or actually, I'd advise you do this. Now, I mean, the, the client still at the end of the day has to make the decision and Maybe they ignore my advice, but part of the value, part of the reason you're paying the solicitor or the lawyer to help you is because they've got vastly more experience in these matters. They've seen what happens when these things go wrong. It's for their advice. Yeah. Why Why would you pay a lawyer if you're not going to take their advice is, is, would be my question. Yeah, that's like hiring a graphic designer and going like, no... I'll just doodle it myself. Yeah, I'll just make it up myself and <laughs> yeah. you are going to, I don't know, just 
remove the white background and make it transparent. And mm. it's like you're wasting your money. Like, mm. you know, yep. just take my advice. Mm-hmm. Now we're moving on to the open mic. Do you have a topic in mind already? Well, um, it is somewhat related to the topic. So one of the other hats that I wear is that I'm a, a lecturer uh, with one of the main training bodies for lawyers. And so I've sort of come full circle. I studied my master's, as I said at the beginning, and now I've been given the opportunity to teach lawyers in that same master's program. And so uh, I suppose one of my passions is um, education and, and teaching the next generation of lawyers, although funnily enough, many of the lawyers are often older than me. <laughs> um, but uh, but yes, teaching them um, something that I would like to see more of is in-person teaching. So I think technology is wonderful and and I think COVID certainly proved that when we've got things like Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams that our communication with one another doesn't have to be limited to geography. We can really speak to anyone now anywhere in the world. And I think that certainly impacted the tertiary education sector and um, that's, there's wonderful benefits that come with that because there's more flexibility. If you had a purely in-person class or course, you're obviously then limiting the students to really people who are geographically near or can move geographically near. But when you are able to do it remotely and offer remote learning, that obviously opens up um, that opportunity to people who live maybe very far from the Institute. So I think there's wonderful benefits that come from that. But I suppose there is a concern I have that, you know, you can always take things to the extreme. And I, I would be disappointed if in the future, um, in-person training and lectures and courses become a thing of the past. Because like we're doing now, I really don't think there's any a significant substitute for in-person communication, um, whether it's the non-verbals, um, the atmosphere. I think we've all can sympathise with things like Zoom fatigue, mm-hmm. particularly during COVID. 100%. Um, and so I think, yeah, one of the passions that I have is making sure that um, lectures and, and teaching, while still offering that remote um, opportunity, still maintains a physical presence because I think in-person learning is really important. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, I always, when I was doing uni, I always preferred in-person classes because, well, I don't know if it's just because um, I have trouble focusing when it's online and I can just so easily switch tabs and like clock out. But it's just also like... Theoretically. Yeah. I'm sure you never did that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, like I'm admitting to it. It's fine. <laughs> I graduated. I did pretty okay. I'm fine. But like, it's just, I feel like meeting the teacher in person, it's just, a, it makes the class a lot more approachable. And mm. there's certain things... Um, I'm not sure about law, but in media, there's like a lot of technology. There's a lot of technology involved, a lot of gear, a lot of equipment. And that's even if we do get 
the equipment from the school and bring it home. It's just like, it's easier to approach the teacher for questions mm. when they're right there. And, mm. you know, it's like you can feel the ambiance, you can feel them radiating this like warmth in person. You can't really feel that mm. through a screen. Like they'll always say, happy to answer questions on wherever, on Teams, blah, blah, mm. blah. But it's like, uh, I don't know if I'm the only one who has that issue. Do you, like, have you taught classes both in person and remote? No, by the time that I came on board, yeah. they had, and again, I don't know how much COVID played into this, but they had eliminated, certainly in the stream that I was teaching, any in-person involvement at all. So it was purely online. And again, don't get, get me wrong, there are wonderful benefits that come with that. Um, but yes, I just have a general concern. I, I always hear, you know, universities in particular, maybe they're, you know, moving to a purely online platform. And I remember from my university days, um, you know, I loved going to in-person lectures and it's not just getting to know the teacher or the lecturer, but it's also just getting to know your fellow students. You can't do that in an online setting really because it's all of those in-between interactions, yeah. you know. Maybe the lecturer is writing something on the board and so you're talking to the person next to you or maybe you're doing group work. <laughs> With an online platform, I mean, you can have a little bit of it, but really not to the same extent. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you there. And it's also like the camaraderie is gone mm. a little bit. Like you can try and replicate it with maybe daily check-ins or something like that. Mm. And like asking weird questions um, on like at the start of the class, which my professors have done before and I appreciate it. It's just very different than like going to a physical class and, you know, having that little after class chat with the mm. professor or like the like the lunch breaks with your fellow classmates or something or even like after class drinks like it's completely different um and so is in person teaching something that you'd want to do in the future yeah definitely cool i'd love to do that that's really cool um i mean <laughs> We were talking at the beginning, uh, I don't know if this has made the cut, about the different jobs I was thinking of and I said Hi. PR was one, but teaching was another. I've always really enjoyed teaching, even as a student myself. I've always loved being able to teach other students and get that little light bulb moment when you see something's clicked and just taking a complex subject or topic and trying to just break it down into more manageable or understandable bites. You know, I really enjoy that aspect of teaching. So, yeah, I would really like to go into to inversing teaching if that was uh, if that opportunity arose. But to sort of segue a little bit, I think you could also say the same thing about the workplace because, as I mentioned before, part of personal development I think includes career development as well because if you've got a job, you spend most of your waking life at the job generally. And so the personal development really ties in with your career development, your professional development. I don't think you can necessarily separate those things because the workplace is going to probably be the place where you do most of your personal development and you develop those skills or you develop that wisdom or that knowledge, whatever it is. And as I said before, you need other people for that. And a, another concern I have is that with more and more workplaces offering working from home arrangements, which again are wonderful. I work some of the week at, uh, at home, as many others do, I'm sure. But my concern is where people are working 100% of the time from home and are no longer in that office environment, particularly if they're more junior, um, you know, some of that 
that learning and osmosis and personal development is going to obviously be lacking. Mm -hmm. So similar to my concerns around tertiary education, I think also working from home arrangements, you know, we just need to be careful. We also don't go to the extreme and we eliminate workplaces, you know, physical workplaces entirely. I have a theory that um, similar to how, like, you know, the trend of um, news and like publications and how in it, like it started with print and then when um, digital and online space was so, was just taking over mm -hmm. the world and everything, everyone was saying that print was going to die and everyone was going online and, and then so a lot of print um, publications did pass away from that but mm. then now they're coming back because it's overcorrected and then people now appreciate print and i feel like that might be something that would happen i don't know what do you think i've seen some commentary mm -hmm. that there is a reversal going on in some companies but i think uh, maybe i shouldn't name them but there was one big well-known bank I've heard that they wanted to implement, you know, mandatory time working in the office, which was resisted quite heavily. And so that makes me think, well, and I don't think they, they, they won their case. So that makes me think, well, no, I think working from home's here to stay. And I think at least at the moment, there's probably not a lot that employers can do about it. And again, I'm not saying we should eliminate it. Again, I work from home some of the time during the week, but I think it's just making sure if you're going to have people working from home, you still are able to provide that in-person training that's mm -hmm. so important um, some of the week. Because if everyone's just working from home, it's really the junior staff that I think suffers the most because I can think of my own personal journey um, as a junior lawyer coming up the ranks being in an office with other people who are more senior than me was so important, whether it's asking questions or just observing, just overhearing mm -hmm. the conversations they're having or sitting in in meetings, mm -hmm. all of that's so important. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you need to make sure that's still going on. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing to be passionate about. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, you know, maybe passionate's going a bit far, but it's certainly something <laughs> that I'm, you know, interested in. <laughs> <laughs> that's good enough for us. Um, so if our listeners want to find you, where can they go? Well, they can go to our website, which is www.degroots.com.au. Um, we also have our own podcast, which has launched recently. That's called Ooh. The Wills and Estates Transmission. So you can find that all on all your main Ooh. podcast channels. Um, uh, LinkedIn, Maximilian Williams, you can find me on there. I got to um, say, that's a really good name that like, has a really good ring to it. Yeah, I, I generally only hear it when I'm in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, I, I do thank my parents for giving me a, a rather interesting name. <laughs> thank you, Max, for coming in today and giving us a very, very detailed explanation of what estate planning is. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. If you want to find Max Williams, you can go to www degroots.com.au always LinkedIn or check out the podcast that they've just launched we will see you next episode you've been listening to the self-improvement atlas the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL the life management science labs 
For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Marie Stella. Thanks for tuning in.